Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Fearless Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and today I'm so excited. My special guest knows all about keto, and I get a lot of questions about keto, and I think it's going to be really, really important to dive into that, some of the do's and don'ts of keto. And so today I have Ben Azadi, FDNP. He is on a mission to help 1 billion people live a healthier lifestyle. He's the author of three best-selling books, Perfect Health Booklet, The Intermittent Fasting Cheat Sheet, and The Power of Sleep. Ben is the founder of Keto Camp, the go-to research source for intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet. He's known as the health detective because he investigates dysfunction and educates, not medicates, to bring the body back into normal function. Hey, Ben, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here today. I'm super excited to have you. Oh, I'm grateful to be here with you, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Thank you for (laughs) the invitation. Yes. Okay. So um, as you know, I get so many questions about keto and keto really changed your life and kind of set you on a different um, course in life. Can you tell us um, just briefly about your story and how keto changed your life? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I meet people nowadays, they see me as this lean, healthy, young man. I'm 36 years old, but I say young man. <laughs> my cells are young. And uh, a lot of people don't know my backstory. And my backstory, and I'll, and I'll make this as efficient as possible, is growing up here in Miami Beach, Florida, I was a bad kid. I was left to my own devices. I hung out with the wrong crowd. And my parents immigrated here from Iran, and they did the best they can with, with their resources. They worked so many jobs, and I was pretty much left to my own devices. So I ate a standard American diet, a stupid American diet, like Dr. Ken Berry says. And I ate Kentucky Fried Chicken because my mom worked there and played video games all the time. So my body just ballooned and ballooned to the point where I was obese as a kid. I was one of those kids that grew up here in Miami being bullied and picked on, low self-confidence, low self-esteem, which transferred into my adulthood. And I found myself back in 2008 being a 24-year-old beast, obese man where I, I weighed 250 pounds. I had 34% body fat. And when I say obese, and I was both physically obese and mentally obese, uh, I was thinking very toxic thoughts. I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was going through a very hard time in my life where I hit rock bottom. And I was literally on the internet several times looking for, for ways to end my life. And anytime I did that, I would think about my mom. I would think about the devastation she would have to endure, and I didn't want to do that to her. So it it forced me to figure it out. So for me, that looked like books. As you can see here behind me, uh, I have all these books behind me, but I was never a reader. Uh, 24 years old, I started to pick up books. I started to read books from authors like Wayne Dyer and Bob Proctor and Tony Robbins and Earl Nightingale and uh, Les Brown, these incredible individuals who went through their own version of rock bottom and did some great things in their life. And it helped me for the first time in my entire life, take responsibility for my health, for my results in life. And I became a victor of my future at that moment. And I stopped becoming a victim of my past. 
So I took responsibility, responsibility. I literally said those words and I am responsible. And, and nine months later, I went from 250 pounds down to 170 pounds. I went from 34% body fat down to 6% body fat. So I finally carved out this physical six pack that I always desired. But the most important stat was that I carved out a mental six pack. I started to think better thoughts. I started to um, do things in my life that I never thought would be possible. And that's what started my journey in the health space uh, 12 years ago now. And uh, I didn't do it with keto, by the way. I did it with other methods. So I was one of those fit, sick people, meaning I was fit and I had six pack abs, but I had leaky gut. I had uh, acne issues. I had digestive issues. And I had to figure things out along the way. And then in 2013 is when I discovered keto and fasting and I started to apply those principles. Yeah, I think that that is an incredible story. And I think one of the things that really stands out to me that was very different is the personal responsibility because I see that as, you know, you can hand somebody the tools and tell them, here are the steps that you do. But if someone's not fully on board and they're not ready to take that personal responsibility or that first step or to do that for themselves or love themselves or care about themselves enough to make that change, you're never going to get the results because, you know, and I think it always depends on what your motivation is. is If your motivation is to look great in a swimsuit um, at, you know, three in the morning when XYZ has broken up with you or you get some terrible news, it's like, here, where's the cookie cakes and candy? And I'm going to shove them all in my mouth and chew them all right now because you don't, you know what I mean? And, you know, I'm like kind of like being tongue in cheek about it, but it's real. And I think it's real for people you know, when they're going through a deep time, because food can be such a comfort. And so I think that personal responsibility or choosing to do that is, um, I think just such an incredible tip. Very, very incredible tip. You make a, a great point there because personally for myself, that's what I did. I felt like I had this void that I was filling with food. And I remember just eating every two hours, every two hours, going to my refrigerator, walking to the kitchen. I wasn't even hungry. But I felt, oh, two hours have passed. Let me go eat something because I had this void. I was not living a life on purpose with my purpose. I had no goals and aspirations. So now that I valued my goals and valued my body, I stopped doing that. I I started to become mindful with my eating. So you make a very good point there. So uh, you and I, you, so every two hours you go to the fridge. And I think that a lot of people do this. What is your take on, you know, snacking, eating every two hours, you know, making sure you're snacking throughout the day? Um, what are your comments on that? I think if you want to age faster than anybody, you know, and, and develop disease faster then yeah, eat every two to three hours, you're going to be constantly stimulating the, the pathway called mTOR which stands for mechanistic target of rapamycin. And that's just growth. And we don't want too much of that. And if we're constantly giving ourselves energy, we're not allowing ourselves to recycle. We are now having cells that are duplicating. These are cells that could be precancerous, turning into cancerous. So I think it's not a good idea unless you want to be a bodybuilder and you want to put on performance, but you're sacrificing health for performance. So I'm not a big fan of eating every two, three hours. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting that that has kind of been the research, or I don't even know if it's the research, but the advice, you know, um, pretty consistently is to snack and to never feel hungry. Do you have any comments on, you know, what happens when your body feels hungry and if you push through that? 
Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Because somebody might be listening and they're like, all right, I'm not going to snack and they're going to feel miserable. They're not going to be able to function, which is a tell pale sign that your metabolism is just not as efficient as we'd like. So that's one of the best things you can do, skip a meal and see how you feel. What's happening is your body is trapped as a sugar burner. Uh, we have 70 trillion cells in the body. And out of those 70 trillion cells, we only have two options for fuel. Either we're burning glucose in the form of sugar or we're burning fat and producing ketones. So the analogy that I like to give is that when you are burning, when your cells are burning glucose and sugar, it creates a lot of cellular smoke. So I compare that to a Mack truck that's speeding through the highway with all this smoke coming out of the exhaust pipe. Not going to be healthy for the environment, not going to be healthy, healthy for your cellular environment. When you transition and teach your metabolism in your body and your cells to now choose fat instead of sugar, that's more like a Tesla cruising through the highway, cleaner for the environment, better for your cellular environment. So what happens is this. When somebody skips a meal as a sugar burner, their brain starts to send the body an intense signal for carbohydrates and sugar because the body does not have the flexibility to tap into its own fat. So that fat storage is blocked. So the body, the brain will start to panic and you'll get these intense cravings and you could have the best willpower in the world going back to your point and, but willpower does not last and your body will start breaking down protein, breaking down muscle and it will create that glucose via gluconeogenesis. So the approach here is teaching your body and your cells to burn fat and having this metabolic freedom, metabolic flexibility. Then when you skip a meal, you just switch from burning through your sugar reserves, which you have about 2000 calories to now tapping into your fat stores. And that's what we want. That is optimal health. We want that flexibility. We want to teach the metabolism to have this efficiency. And that is the ultimate goal here. Now I hear like, I, I feel like I hear people out there saying, well, that's great and all, but I tried keto and it didn't work for me. So I think one of the big things that we hear about why keto or why intermittent fasting doesn't work. And I'll break them both down. But first thing is, well, I was so fatigued when I started doing a higher fat diet that I couldn't work out. So what's happening during that time frame? Yeah, there's a few things. I'd love to just share for your audience that I don't sure. view keto the same way a lot of people view it and teach it. Uh, the Keto is a double-edged sword right now because it's mm -hmm. so popular. On Dr. Google, they'll get, you'll get a, over 100 million results. But keto is not a diet. Keto is a metabolic process. It's been around for as long as humans have existed. Every single one of our ancestors did keto. Their environment forced them into ketosis. So it's just tapping into this metabolic state. Why would somebody transition into keto and feel worse? A few things. The number one reason I see people struggle on keto is sluggish bile. So the liver, which is the soccer mom organ of all organs, she does everything in, for us. That's she funny. Is, <laughs> the four and a half pound uh, organ that sits right here on uh, the right side of her ribcage, and she does everything for us. She detoxes for us, but she also produces bile. Bile is a green substance that helps to break down fat. It's a detergent for fat. So when we cannot break down fat and we start eating more fat on keto, we're, gonna, we're not going to feel so good, number one. The second thing that bile does, it helps eliminate toxins because toxins love fat and bile binds those toxins for elimination. And guess what happens when we start to burn fat on keto? We start to release more toxins into the bloodstream because we store toxins in our fat cells. 
So that's a two-part problem. We can't eliminate toxins, we can't break down fat, and we don't feel good. So what's the solution? Your audience is probably wondering, what do you do? Uh, bitters, bitters are better. So eat more bitters that stimulate the liver. Uh, arugula, apple cider vinegar, lemons and limes. Have some um, artichokes are great. Uh, basil, thyme and rosemary. These are herbs that you can just smell. And then also you could supplement with an ox bile supplement or some digestive enzymes, HCL. So that right there would make a big difference to make sure you're breaking down the fat, you're assimilating the fat-soluble vitamins. You're going to feel so much better when you do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, all right, so someone's starting a keto diet. What a lot of women that I have seen have said, you know, some some practitioner, somebody has started me on a keto diet. And I know it's a lifestyle and it's a way, like it's more of a metabolic function. But just for, you know, just humor me with this, right? So um, they're like, I gained weight. Um, and what would you say to those folks that tried it and they gained weight on it? What do you think the reasons for that could be? Yeah, I've seen that before. The number one reason I've seen is because they're snacking. They're snacking all day long. Even if it's keto-friendly snacks, the healthiest keto, clean keto foods, if you're snacking throughout the day and you're not doing intermittent fasting, then you're still going to spike insulin. And insulin is the bully of the block. Insulin is the only fat storage hormone that we have. And when insulin is called, the fat burning hormones, they're scattered, they're gone. So think I always like to, to picture or explain our fat burning hormones. We have uh, at least eight that we know of. As these children playing in the playground, these fat burning hormones, they're burning fat, right? And then we call insulin, we snack. Now insulin is going to bully those kids out of the, out of the playground and insulin is going to teach your body to store fat. So number one is to have, I would start right here, have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So three meals a day, keto-friendly meals, eating plenty of protein. Protein is important because it signals these satiety hormones like cholecystokinin and other hormones that keep you feeling full so you don't have to snack in between your meals. Once you feel comfortable doing that, then you could take it to two meals a day. And then eventually maybe you could do something like OMAD, which is one meal a day, but you want to pair intermittent fasting with keto, that'll help lose the weight. Another reason is even if somebody's doing that and they're still not losing weight, it's the toxicity component. A lot of people, the body is so smart. I always call it the world's greatest physician that we have within us, this innate intelligence, that if we have a ton of toxins from mercury and other heavy metals that we do store in our fat cells because the body the number one priority for the human body is survival. So when toxins enter our body from the cleaning products, from silver fillings, from lead-based paint, contact lenses in the 80s and 90s, these accumulate, but the body is so smart and it wants to survive. So it'll actually signal something called PPARY, which is a pathway to take these toxins and put them into our fat cells, create new fat cells, because it doesn't want those, the body doesn't want the toxins to enter our vital organs. So now we get these toxins stored and your body is, you're going and doing keto, but the body knows if it starts to burn fat cells, it's going to dump all these toxins and it's going to harm the body. So it'll hold on to that fat. So doing a heavy metals detox in combination with keto and fasting can be profound for those people who feel stuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the longer I've been in practice, 
The one thing that I've seen that, you know, a lot of alternative practitioners like nail the gut. And I think that that is very important in liver and gallbladder. And I think that all of those are very relevant. I think most people have Murphy's sign, which is when you push on the gallbladder, they jump because it's like four out of four tenderness. But the thing that I have seen more frequently in practice than not is major toxicity issues. I mean, everything that we do, and I can hear people out there saying, oh, I didn't wear, I didn't wear contacts in the 80s and I don't have silver fillings, so I don't have a toxicity problem. And the the bottom line is is that we're exposed to around 70 to 80,000 chemicals every single day, just getting up and moving around. And something crazy that I've seen recently, so I'm in a place where there's a lot of fires happening. So I'm in Colorado and I've seen a resurge recently of a lot of my patients that had, you know, blood pressure managed and had their autoimmune disease managed and whatever is happening and whatever the fires are burning up and the smoke coming from California, we're seeing blood pressure rates spike again. We're seeing like a recurrence of autoimmune because you're thinking about what these fires are burning, plastics, mold, you know, on and on. And so all of this stuff is getting toxed out. And so you're seeing some of these autoimmune diseases flare again that were created or caused by a toxicity issue. And we don't have them stable enough because they're too early in the process to, you know, to be able to manage such a large toxicity burden. So I'm a huge believer in like fat hanging on because of toxins. So I'm glad that you align with that. I, I yeah. love that you align with that. And I love that you teach it to your, your patients. And I just wanted to add to that. Those who say, yeah, I don't have silver fillings. I don't, I didn't wear the contact lenses. Well, here's the deal. The number one source of lead in the body is from mom. Okay. Cause when you give birth to, well, I don't give birth. When, when ladies give birth, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute <laughs> give birth to their kid they lose bone. Bone is lost. It goes into the baby and that is lead and it's passed on from generation to gener- up to four generations. So that's number one. And then also, even if your mom had silver fillings and she gave birth to you, uh, there was a study called uh, the DRASH study that showed they looked at uh, babies that were aborted. They didn't make it through the, the birth and they did autopsies on their brain. These are babies and they found, they correlated the amount of mercury they found in these babies' brain was proportional to the amount of mercury in the mom's mouth, okay? So it's passed on through generations. So it might not be a current exposure. Maybe you had your silver, silver fillings taken out, but those that mercury is still locked into that hypothalamus pituitary. So it, we live in the most toxic time in the world. So I wanted to just help you drive that point home. Yeah, no, I I love that. It definitely gets passed through the mother to the baby. All right, so we've got somebody that is starting. We're just going to kind of take this step by step. So we've got someone that is wanting to start to do um, intermittent fasting. So um, a common question I get asked is, can I, this is debated by, I think, and I'd like to hear your, your segue on this. Can you have coffee and can you have coffee with creamer? Oh yeah. That's one of the most common questions I get on my YouTube channels. (laughs) Um, Well, let's, my, my definition of breaking a fast is when the autophagy starts to go away. Do do you want me to break down autophagy or does you think? I think, why don't you go ahead and break it down? Because, you know, I think that's important. Yeah. So autophagy is, is probably my favorite benefit of fasting. 
It's a switch, if you will, that is turned on when you practice fasting and also exercise and also certain ingredients. But autophagy is, the analogy I give is this. I think analogies usually work well. Uh, think of the refrigerator that we have inside of our kitchen. We open up that refrigerator. So I hope your audience is just picturing this refrigerator. You open it up. You have all these groceries inside of the fridge that have expiration dates on them. What would happen if we just let all the groceries inside of our fridge expire, but we don't throw those groceries into the trash? We just buy new groceries, put them in front of the old ones, and close that door. It's going to be disgusting. It's going to be mold, bacteria, disease will manifest in that refrigerator. The human body is like that refrigerator. We have cells, we have proteins, mitochondria, fat that have expiration dates on them. As a matter of fact, out of the 70 trillion cells in the body, 70 billion of them are required to be recycled every single day. So the recycling process is autophagy. The Greek definition of it is eat thyself. Your body is so smart. This innate intelligence is so amazing that it will look for the junk first, the damaged cells, the expired groceries when you don't eat food, when you stop giving yourself food energy. So it turns on this switch and it starts to recycle these cells. It's like Pac-Man going within your cells, cleaning out the junk. And if your body has determined that this cell is a senescent cell, a zombie cell, there is no function, we cannot repair this cell, then it signals apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, and it gets rid of that cell. And then it signals a stem cell for a new cell. And all this is happening when we fast through autophagy. So what stops autophagy is when we raise glucose and insulin. Going back to the question, does coffee break your fast? What about coffee with cream? I don't know. We have to test our glucose. So what I tell my clients, test your glucose, have your coffee, test your glucose 30 minutes after, and if it goes up more than five points, then it's breaking your fast. But if it doesn't, you're totally fine. And I can see by you nodding your head that you're aligned with that. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's yeah. totally true. And I love, I love, I love that you're having people check glucose. Yes. Hello. Like, does it work for me? I don't know. Why don't we check your blood sugar after you eat it? Is it an okay food? I don't know. What diet do you recommend? I'm not really sure. Why don't we see what foods work for you? Mm. Let's check your blood sugar after you eat some of these foods outside of basic parameters. Like cassava is a big one that I'm asked about a lot of times. Like, is this food okay? I mean, for some people, it's great. For other people, it's not okay. I mean, it just, it really varies. So I, th- I like that point that you brought that up. And, you know, same line of thinking on supplements. Is that how you feel about that? Yeah. A general rule of thumb is that if you could have your supplements during your eating window, that's always better. But if mm-hmm. let's say your schedule doesn't permit it, then uh, you're definitely safe with things like minerals and magnesium and potassium. The herbs might get you in some trouble with spiking glucose, but like you said, you got to test. I personally have a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, so I'm always seeing what's working for me or not. And uh, even some keto-friendly foods will spike my glucose. And for me, I have some sensitivity to it, but I I know because I have that data. So you could use a machine, you could use a CGM, but like you said, it's so important to know these things. Yeah, I like that. Um, so take me through like um, what you think is, you know, kind of the parameters on keto diet um, because there's so many differences. Um, so what do you think are like, as a general rule, what do you think is kind of a good diet on keto that you think is relatively safe? Uh, so the way I teach keto is not as a... Um, 
something that we want to do all the time. Meaning I don't, just like our ancestors did ketosis, every single one of our ancestors, they didn't stay in ketosis. There's not one diet that any of our ancestors did long-term. They always changed according to their environment. So I teach it as a tool to reset the hormones and metabolism. Uh, I teach the approach of gradually decreasing your carbohydrates and at the same time increasing your healthy protein and fat. And for most people, if you reached below 50 grams of total carbs for the day, you should be in ketosis. And you do that for the way I teach in my academy, Keto Camp Academy is about four months, three to four months, we are doing ketosis, we're doing keto, and then we start doing keto flexing, where we start flexing in and out of ketosis. But these are all general rules to follow. There's different rules to follow if you're a woman who has a monthly cycle versus a postmenopausal woman versus a man, how active you are, you might be able to have more carbohydrates, but plenty of protein, about 40 to 50 grams per meal, eating enough fat so you feel satiated and dropping your carbs below 50 grams per day should get you some good results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I get a lot of comments. Um, and what do you think? I mean, and I think I know your answer, but I have had patients that said, did you know that squash is a higher glycemic food? Yes, I did. So are you generally seeing that pull people out of, you know, ketosis? It could. Yeah. It depends on how much they have. So I've given the general rules. Some people do better looking at net carbs. So subtracting the fiber. Um, if you have most of your carbs from non-starchy green leafy vegetables, that's going to be your best bet. Those should not pull you out of ketosis and you even have more flexibility for more carbohydrates. But yeah, and um, the squash could do it, especially when people start doing spaghetti squash and squash this and then they just start switching things out. And even artificial sweeteners like sucralose and aspartame are not good. I don't believe they're good because they could create gut dysbiosis. So there's a lot of things to consider here for sure. Oh my goodness. Aspartame. I, I remember having a case where, um, the patient had DID because she was drinking 12 diet Cokes per day, like almost a schizophrenic break, um, with 12 diet Cokes a day. And when we took her off of the diet Cokes, it's so weird. The voices stopped. (laughs) Like there, that's what happens in, in large amounts. It was, it was really quite an interesting case. So it, you know, so someone really wants to lose weight, um, and they want to get healthy and they really are looking towards, you know, intermittent fasting and keto. How long are you seeing that take to get results? It'll depend. I I think I always like to reframe people when they, when they Mm -hmm. say, how do I lose weight with keto? How do I lose weight with this? I tell them, Hey, we don't lose weight to get healthy. We get healthy to lose weight. Let's Mm -hmm. focus on health. Let's focus on cellular health, reducing inflammation and letting your hormones communicate Uh, more efficiently. And then the weight will come off as a side effect. Let's pay attention to non-scale victories, your energy levels, uh, your measurements, body fat percentage. Maybe you do some uh, lab work, you get some panels done. So I've seen, to answer your question, I've seen uh, men lose a lot more weight faster. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen um, people, uh, uh, I'll give you an average answer. On average, I've seen about a couple pounds of fat loss per week. Uh, sustainably until they they reach their certain goal weight. But that can be done. Now, that doesn't happen for everybody, and men will get that much faster than women. But focusing on health, focusing on quality, clean keto foods, the right keto foods will reduce cellular inflammation. And cellular inflammation is the number one cause of weight gain and weight loss resistance. So we want to focus on that. 
What have you also seen? Because something that I, I, excuse me, I've definitely, oh, I'm going to cough, made a correlation with in practice has been, you know, what is actually going on in the gut and not necessarily pathogens because, you know, that is certainly going on in a lot of folks. But um, when you get down to leaky gut and you get down to see what the microbiome actually looks like, you know, some people just seem really, really deficient in um, some of the microbiome that definitely trigger weight loss. Um, you seen gut health in any of your folks that are following this be a contributor to potentially not getting the results that they want, even though they feel wonderful and healthy and they feel great and all of these subjective parameters have been met in all of these goals, but they still can't get the weight off. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's where like a test, I don't know what you use at your clinic, but a uh, gut zoomer is what I use looking at your bacterioids to firmicutes ratio. And if you have an mm -hmm. imbalance, it could create weight loss resistance. This also goes back to the toxicity conversation because if you're dumping mercury in your gut, it doesn't matter how many gut cleanses you do and coffee enemas you do, you gotta, mm -hmm. you gotta get that mercury out of your tissue. So um, that creates dysfunction. But yeah, it's, it's very important to look at that. And leaky gut is rarely diagnosed. And then when it is, it's 10 to 20 years after the fact. And I don't even know what the percentage is. I don't know if you, you have some sort of estimation or you know, but I would estimate at least 80% of people in America have some sort of leaky gut. So yes, that is a, a, definite, a definite barrier when you want to lose the weight. You got you to gotta fix that gut. Mm -hmm. I would probably estimate it's about the same. I think on, I use um, GI map more uh, more commonly just because I, I tend to deal with a lot more pathogens, a lot more um, autoimmune um, gut inflammatory cases. And I would definitely say either the um, secretory IgA is way too high or way too low. And yeah, I'd probably guess about 80% of cases, maybe mm -hmm. 70, somewhere in there. But if they don't have leaky gut, I'm surprised that they don't because they have so many other pathogens. It's super impressive. I don't, I don't, it's just surprising. So it's right. interesting. Yeah, it's it is interesting. It's good to look at it, right? Not a lot of people right. look at the gut. It's, it's a very key component to the overall picture. So I love that you do that. Yeah. So, all right. So someone says, oh yes, I, I don't think that keto would work for me. I did Atkins, you know, whenever <laughs> Atkins was around, I don't even know what year I'm not nineties was in the nineties. I'm yeah, pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so how, what is the difference there? There's a few differences. Uh, Atkins didn't really distinguish between clean fats, healthy fats versus bad. It was just all fats would go. And there's a big difference. There's a huge difference between these rancid, adulterated fats like vegetable oils and cottonseed oil, soybean oil, canola, corn. Those were a go for Atkins. But when I teach keto, they're a no-go. I believe those fats, and I see you shaking your head. So I believe those, yeah. <laughs> I believe they're worse than sugar because your body could at least burn sugar, but it cannot burn these fats. And I read a study in the PEO solution by uh, Professor Brian Peskin, who I interviewed on my podcast, that showed consuming these rancid fats resulted in 132 days of infl inflammation around the cells. So when they removed these fats, it took 132 days for these cells to function normal. And then I interviewed Dr. Kate Shanahan and I asked her, 
uh, if this is worse, you know, vegetable oils are worse than smoking cigarettes. And she said, cigarettes are by far worse. And she said, you almost guarantee your, your chances of almost a hundred percent of getting some disease in your life. If you're going to consume these vegetable oils on a consistent basis. So Atkins didn't talk about this. Atkins was more protein. More, uh, we know didn't really involve intermittent fasting. So there's a few differences there. Uh, the way that I teach keto uh, is very different because I'm focusing on clean, stable fats like uh, avocados, avocado oil, olive oil, olives, grass-fed beefs, coconut oil, MCT oils. These are much stable and our cell membranes could actually use it for fuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did not realize it created inflammation around the cell for that long. That's actually news to me. That's phenomenal research. And that is really scary. And if you have inflammation, people are like, oh, whatever inflammation, it doesn't matter. But if you don't have inflammation, how are you going to lose weight? How are you going to detoxify? How, like, how are you going to do any of those things? If you're incredibly inflamed, it's going to be much more challenging to actually have your cells work like they're supposed to work. So that's, and you can be taking the most expensive supplements in the world. And if those minerals and vitamins can't connect to your cells, then they won't get in. You're not going to feel well. So now good stuff can't get in, bad stuff can't get out of your cells, and then disease starts to manifest. I, I was, also want to share that. I asked Professor Brian Paskin the same question about the cigarettes, and he's a very he's an engineer, so he's like a very looking at all the data. So he said, <laughs> let's look at the data. And he said, according to his research, that if somebody smoked two packs of cigarettes every single day for up to 28 years, their chances of developing cancer, lung cancer was about eight, um, uh, 16%, one six. And then he said, somebody who ate, consumes these cooked vegetable oils, the canola, the soybean, the cottonseed, every single day for 28 years, their chances of developing heart disease or cancer is 86%. That's insane. That's a big comparison right Whoa. there. Well, and I mean, look at our society, look at what's going on right now. I mean, those are, you know, two of our top killers and, you know, we we're thinking about processed and fried and food and all of those things. I mean, we are bombarded with all of those oils. If we, you know, if we don't take the time to, um, you know, correct our, our food chain and what we're eating, because there are super easy convenience foods all around us. Yeah. They're so cheap. That's why they're everywhere. They're even in whole foods everywhere. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You have to be careful on what you buy. You know, I think the other thing that I like what you said about supplements is I'm a huge fan of supplements. I think that they are amazing, but they are a supplement to your diet. You can't Mm -hmm. eat bad and then go out and take a bunch of supplements to mitigate that. They're just a supplement to that diet. So thanks for bringing that point up. All right. So on keto, um, what's your, or what's your comment on counting calories? Mm. So when I, I used to own a CrossFit gym here in Miami several years ago, and, uh, and I was a personal trainer as well when I started my health journey. And I used to believe in the counting calories, calories in versus calories out. I used to, let's look at the science of fat loss. I even did workshops back in the day called the science of fat loss, where I would teach all the members or the attendees how to count your calories. And then I realized that the human body is not a calculator. It's not a bank account. It's not a math equation. It's none of that. And I also realized there's no receptors in the body to count calories. The human body is more complex than that. So do calories matter? 
Yes. Are calories important? No, they're just a huge distraction to what really matters. And what really matters is the hormones and their communication to your cells. So we focus on that and uh, the calories and all that will take care of itself. So I think it's a huge distraction. And I think a lot of fitness coaches and dietitians and those out there that are teaching it are doing their clients and patients a huge disservice. Yeah, the research on calories in, calories out, or eat less, move more, a lot of those were done in rat or animal models. They weren't even done in human studies. Actually, most of the studies that have been done with um, with weight loss have been around uh fasting, intermittent fasting, and like the type of calories that you're actually eating. Because if you have, you know, the same amount of Oreos as you do almonds, you know, let's say they're the same amount of calories, you know, but, you know, I don't think anybody's going to argue that an almond, unless you're really allergic, right, is going to be better for you than, you know, the same amount of Oreos. And I think we can all agree that if you have some almonds versus if you have an Oreo, you know, almonds are probably not going to make you gain weight unless you're just tearing down like packages of almonds, right? You know, more than you could get in nature at, at one time. Right. That's right. Yeah. Anybody can do that test. Give yourself 500 calories of, of almonds versus 500 calories of Oreos and compare, see what happens because it's going to be a completely different hormonal response. And that's what it's really about. And so there are a lot of people talking about keto and intermittent fasting. Um, what are some of the major misconceptions out there? For keto, it's the fact because it's the fact that when somebody goes on on Doctor Google and they see what are the macros for keto and they see okay about 80% fat, ten uh, percent protein, five percent carbs to get into ketosis, and they're going to follow that. What what people don't understand is that we can get our calories, our keto calories, from that plate of food, and we can follow those macros, or we can get it from our butt, our hips, and our thighs. It's really our choice. So we want the flexibility to burn our own body fat, and it's keto is not a high-fat diet. It's not about eating a whole bunch of bacon and cheese and driving your fat up, although that can be keto. It's not necessarily keto. Keto is more low-carb. Bring your carbs low. Do some intermittent fasting, and that's where intermittent fasting comes into play. And the way that I teach it is first get keto adapted, and then, then pair intermittent fasting and make sure that much more efficient. And then for fasting is, you know, the people say you're going to go into starvation mode. You're going to slow down the metabolism. The metabolism, first of all, doesn't have any speeds. It's very, it's either efficient or inefficient, but you, the exact opposite is true. I mean, there was a study, I, I think Dr. Jason Fung referenced it, that uh, after a four day water fast, the metabolism increased. It actually was more efficient by 13% because the biggest difference is that when we practice fasting, we are activating counter-regulatory hormones. Glucagon, uh, we're activating the sympathetic tone, cortisol, human growth hormone, and that's keeping your metabolism uh, efficient because the body's not stupid. It doesn't want you to start losing energy and, and losing focus when you're not eating food. It wants you to stay alert and energized, and it literally pumps you full of energy so you could go hunt and kill, but we're so blessed that we don't have to do that. We could just hit an Uber Eats uh, app button on our phone and have a millennial knocking on our door with food. But the body doesn't know about Uber Eats. The body is hardwired for the old school. So it will not go into starvation mode. It's not going to burn muscle. It's going to burn body fat. 
unless you have our freakishly low body fat of 5% or less, then you'll tap into muscle. So those are a couple of myths that I hear a lot. Do you ever see, um, do you ever see a, this more relates to women than men, but women actually eating too few calories while doing this while intermittent fasting, um, you know, just having been way too low calorically. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why it's important to feast when you are eating and eating until full, getting plenty of protein and fat because we don't want too much autophagy and we don't want too much mTOR. There is a delicate balance here between the growth pathway and the catabolic pathway and repairing pathway. So you're right. I, I do see that people fall in love with fasting. I have fallen in love with fasting. I have eaten anything today. I'm fasted right now. It's 4.15 in the afternoon because I'm so focused and so alert, but to a detriment because if I do too much of it, when the body's done eating the bad stuff via autophagy, guess what it goes for the good stuff and it could weaken the immune system and it could mess up the thyroid. So absolutely. And I see that too. It's important to feast, eat at least one meal per day until full and maybe have one day out of the week where you do no fasting, you do no keto, what I call a keto flex day. And you ramp, you teach the body, you remind it that it's not starving and you get more of that mTOR, you get more of these insulin spikes to help these hormonal conversions. Yeah. I mean, I see this a lot and women are super surprised. I'm like, yeah, I do what I want on the weekends. Like, yeah, no, I'll have that. No, I'll eat that. You know, it, and I just kind of like, I'm, I'm regimented during the week and I do what I want on the weekends as it relates to like, you know, being with friends or being with family and, you know, spending that time. And I don't, I try not to give myself hard stops. And I think also working out when I'm working out all day long, I think that that, you know, creates a problem, but yeah, I see women, especially women eat way, way too little. I'm like, how are you staying? Do you, have you done this for weeks? Yeah, no, no, you can't do that. No, 500 calories is not enough. I'm sorry. Not, not day after day after day after day. So thanks for bringing that point up. And so I think, um, is there, there's, has been one thing about, um, keto versus keto acidosis. And I think some people are concerned about, oh my goodness, if I, if I, you know, get into fat burning, I'm going to get into keto acidosis. Yeah. You know, it's a shame that there's still some, some conventional medical doctors that are telling their patients this, you know, we don't want you to do keto. Keto acidosis is very dangerous. They're correct. Keto acidosis is very dangerous. It's life threatening, but it's only a cause for concern if you're a type one diabetic, meaning, yeah, yeah you, you can't you make insulin. So all of a sudden you get extraordinary amounts of ketones over 15 on a, on a beta hydroxybutyrate. That's almost impossible to do if you're not type one diabetic. So if you are type one diabetic, which I know there's a few out there, there's a few David who's in my keto camp Academy membership. They it's important to monitor your numbers to make sure you're not getting those, those uh, ketones so high. But for most people, uh, it's not a cause for concern. And there's a big difference between ketosis, which is completely healthy and normal in a metabolic state versus ketoacidosis, which is only for those who are type one diabetic. Yeah. And are you a fan of exogenous ketones or ketones that you take? Not really. Um, I, I like them maybe as like a, a biohack, but a lot of people want this, this magic pill to get them in ketosis. And it might show when you're testing that it's, you're producing more ketones. But the only time that I would use and recommend 
uh, exogenous ketones would be, first of all, I would make sure it's a company that's credible. They have a good research around their product. They have, make a good product. And then I would use it as like a, a brain performance, a brain enhancement. So if I was going on a podcast like this and I wanted to take some ketones to just help, that could help. Or if you're an endurance athlete, that could help. If you're going to be exposed to radiation, uh, there's some research from Don Diagostino that shows it could help. So traveling on an airplane, going through an x-ray machine, getting x-rays done. And then the other time I, I would use it is if let's say you're doing keto for a month and you're not in ketosis, I would use it for a little bit to see if it'll prime the pump but I wouldn't rely on it. I think it's important to let your body produce it on its own and not rely on exogenous ketones. Awesome. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think is important to add? Uh, we covered a lot. You're a great interviewer. Thank I love, you. I love the conversation. Uh, a lot of alignment here. And, Definitely. Uh, I'd love to have you on my Keto Camp podcast, by the Sounds way. Sounds great. Um, what I mean, the, the missing component is really not even keto. It's not fasting. It's, it's our thoughts, really. You know, we think about 60 to thousand, 60,000 thoughts per day. And, uh, those are a lot of thoughts and they go unchecked. So I am a big believer that if we could change our thoughts, we'll change our life and what we feed energy to expands. So what we think about, what we think about, we bring about. So having better, choosing better thoughts, uh, practicing gratitude. I, I can't tell you how many notebooks I have like this, um, close to 20, just filled with gratitude. I haven't missed a single night and a single morning in almost four years of writing down gratitude and goals because what we think, what we are grateful for, life gives us more to be grateful for. So instead of asking ourselves, what's the next supplement? What are my macros? How do you do keto the right way? Let's ask ourselves, how do we choose better thoughts? And it's very tricky because it's when you're brushing your teeth, walking your dog, washing dishes, it's those, th those thoughts throughout the day and, and when you develop the awareness that you have a thought that doesn't serve you, that tells you that you're not good enough, you're too fat, you're never going to lose the weight, let it pass like a cloud and choose a better thought. And if you get really good at that, then the keto, the fasting, whatever that you choose to do, the supplements works that much better. So stay in gratitude, choose better thoughts. And that's the last message I want to share with your audience. Yeah, what a great um, way to wrap this up. And I agree with you 100%. I do a gratitude journal. I have, and I just think that they re I feel like they really shape the day. Like you start to see things in such a positive light. Like, oh, that guy cut me off. He meant to do it. And then I just feel bad about You actually say, you know what? I bet he's having a hard day or he's in a hurry somewhere. It's probably, it's good. I mean, he needs to, he needs to get there. You just are like, whoosh. And mm -hmm. that really affects your cortisol levels in a big way, for sure. And so, you know what? That's a yeah. good point because cortisol will knock you out of ketosis because cortisol goes up, glucose follows, ketones drop. And it's all stories that we create. And you could create the story that that guy cut me off, he's a jerk, and you're going to be now pissed off. Or you can create the story that, oh, he might be going to the hospital or he might be late for an interview and give it the benefit of the doubt. But we created that story. So why not create a better story? So great, great point right there. Absolutely. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? The Keto Camp Podcast. We're a top 15 podcast in the US, alternative health space. We're going to have Ann on now. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> uh, my Keto Camp YouTube channel. We have over 110,000 subscribers. And just type in Benazadi uh, on any social media platform. I'm very accessible. And I'd love to just hear what you thought about this episode. I'm grateful to connect with your wonderful audience today. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for everybody listening. We are so, so grateful that you tuned in and stopped by and listened to us here. Um, You can find us on the Fearless Health podcast on YouTube. Please let us know what you loved about this episode. We want to do more of those. So comment below and say hello and give us five stars as well as on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.